Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 56 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today my guest is Sarah Whitney. Sarah is a violinist and success coach. In this episode, Sarah and I talk about her life as a professional violinist, her concert series Beyond the Notes, and her blog, The Productive Musician, that focuses on health and wellness, productivity, and strategies for developing and maintaining an effective mindset. You could check out her blog at sarahwhitney.com slash theproductivemusician. If you are interested in booking a free discovery call with Sarah, you could check out the link in the episode description and also on our social media accounts. If you are interested in becoming a guest on our show, feel free to send your bio to musicherstorypod at gmail.com. We would love to have you. And I will see you next Monday. Well, my name is Sarah Whitney. I'm a violinist and I'm also a success coach for musicians. I play in the string quintet Sybarite 5 and I am also the founder and artistic director of the interactive concert series Beyond the Notes. And as a coach, I help high-level musicians create the most fulfilling career imaginable by helping them unlock what's holding them back so they can truly step into the career of their dreams. Excellent. I'm so excited to have you here. Just to get a little bit more information about, you know, where you're coming from and everything. um, Can you tell us what got you started in music in the first place? Yes, absolutely. Well, I have been playing violin since I was four years old. And um, the story goes, or so I've been told, that my (laughs) older brother, my older brother played violin. He's a couple years older than me. And apparently I begged and begged my parents to get me my own violin Um, because I wanted to be cool as him. And uh, so eventually they did right before, right after my fourth birthday, they got me a violin. Um, And so that's sort of the story I've been told, although I don't really remember that piece of it. But um, both uh, both my parents played violin, not professionally, but they played as a hobby. So I grew up in a musical household. So it was always around me. Um, Yeah, so that's sort of how I got how I got my start. That's awesome. And so you you kind of hinted at, you know, your brother was playing um, as well. And so you begged your parents for the violin. Is that is that the sole reason why you chose violin? Or was there like another motivation behind that choice? I mean, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't like I didn't have there wasn't like a moment where I was like, I want to play that. Like, you know, I, I talked to some colleagues who say, yes, I remember seeing a famous violinist and being like, I want to do that. I don't remember that. I mean, I think it's, you know, being around the violin with both my parents playing, having my brother play. I have a feeling that was the largest part of the influence. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so you started violin at, you know, four years old, which is you know, for, for someone like me, who's like a trumpet player, it sounds so young. Right. But like for string players, that's really not unusual to start that young. So can you talk a little bit maybe about like your early music study, like how you got started maybe when you were four and then how that kind of transitioned, you know, when you were in school? Yeah, sure. So I started with the Suzuki method mm-hmm. and that's probably the most widely known method for starting young string players. And, um, and I'm actually now a Suzuki certified teacher. 
And the way the Suzuki method works, it was start, started by Shinichi Suzuki, who lived in Japan, and he basically modeled the method um, after how children learn their mother tongue. So he was studying how children sort of learn their own language based on their environment, obviously teaching, repetition, practice, and all of those things. And most children at a very young age are able to do that. So he took those elements of how children learn their mother tongue and he applied it to music. So there is obviously the teaching element, um, the parental involvement to help you know a young child like practice um, and lots of repetition and then um, group learning as well were three main components of that method to sort of reflect what a child will be going through in school um, as they're, you know, getting learning their learning how to speak. Um, yeah, so that is how I learned. And, you know, it's funny, when I was four, I was not handed a violin, actually, the um, before you get your actual violin as a Suzuki student and a young child, you get a box with a ruler attached to it that's sort of shaped like a violin. Um, because there's a strong belief that you really need to learn the positioning first before you hand a four-year-old child an instrument that makes noise, because when you do that, all they want to do is make noise. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's actually how I started, um, with a box and a ruler. Once I, you know, once you get the positioning down and certain things, um, you graduate to having your own violin. So, yeah. And I guess the second part of your question about, um, how I ended up studying violin was that? Was that the second part? Yeah, like when you started to, you know, become a little more, more serious about it as you were getting older and into your school program and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, violin was always a, a pretty significant part of my life. I think when I was in music uh, middle school, so I lived outside, I grew up outside of Boston in the suburbs of Boston. And when I was in middle school, I started taking lessons, I think, with a teacher at New England Conservatory in Boston. So I was commuting into the city to do that. And then also I started getting involved with youth orchestra programs. And so that's like middle school is when I started to get much more serious about the instrument. And then in high school as well, I was doing various youth orchestra programs in the city, coming into the city on the weekends to do that. Um, and as far as the decision to pursue music, I actually didn't grow up necessarily with that one track mind of I'm going to be a professional violinist. I actually thought I was going to be a lot of different things. You know, people would ask me, what do you want to do? And I think there was a time where I wanted to be a physical therapist and then a veterinarian. And, you know, I kind of had all these ideas, even through middle school, it was just sort of, I was so curious about everything. And, um, but music was a big part of my life and I was pretty good at it. And so I remember the conversations around college came I guess like 10th grade or so. And my mom had spoken to my violin teacher and there was this sort of, this was proposed to me, like, what would you think about going to music school? Like you, you might be able to do pretty well. So that's sort of when the decision happened and it really just made a lot of sense. I was like, oh yeah, I guess that does make sense. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's sort of how I ended up pursuing music. But I think my curiosity of, of lots of other things is something I, I still have and has, have always had. And I carried that with me through college and I was always taking other classes. Like I, I mean, I went to University of Michigan for undergrad. They had so many classes I could just take um, that had nothing to do with music. So I've always really been curious about other things, which um, which has also really informed my career a lot and how I've built my businesses and all that stuff too. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that's, that's so great. And so what kind of, you were talking about how you, you thought about all different things, you know, when you were growing up of what you wanted to pursue professionally, but what kind of motivated you to, to pursue violin performance and, you know, go on to the collegiate programs that you, that you went on to and what were your college experiences like overall and how did those prepare you for your professional work now? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think it just happened really organically, honestly, um, because I had music was such a huge part of my life in high school and middle school. It did really make sense. I think maybe I like subconsciously knew I was going to do it, but um, it was really sort of the prospect of like, which colleges are you going to apply to, Sarah? Like, let's have these conversations. (laughs) Um, But my college experiences... um, Yeah, so I did my undergrad at the University of Michigan, and then I went on to grad school at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And in Ann Arbor at Michigan, um, I mean, I I loved it there. It was an incredible place. And I was a classical violin performance major, but um, I always had interests in other genres. And that actually, when I was younger as well, I did fiddling and I was always sort of like, like I said, I was very curious, (laughs) always exploring other things. So at Michigan, um, I actually took a Jazz 101 class, sort of, it was my senior year, I think, and I thought it would be like an easy credit. (laughs) Um, But it was actually the hardest class I've ever taken in my life um, as a (laughs) classical major, but also one of the best classes I ever took because learning how to improvise, learning about that really opened my eyes to like a whole world that I didn't really know before that. And really made a lot of sense with my curiosity of other styles. And then I went on to graduate school with the Cleveland Institute of Music, which is a very conservative, high level orchestral training school. Um, So I sort of had to like, really kind of, when it came to to studying other styles, you know, they didn't really offer anything. It was a very, it was a small conservatory, but I still found ways to sort of explore other genres. I took guitar, uh, I took jazz lessons from the guitar professor, and I also took a big band arranging class at Case Western University, which was across the street. And so I was always sort of, and I was always seeking out really unique repertoire. That was another thing. I just, I would just go to the library and just look for weird things that people weren't playing. And when I say weird, I don't necessarily mean like crazy wild new music stuff. I mean, I did a lot of that too, but it was like accessible music, like like I did, a, I explored a lot of Piazzolla. I did a Claude Bowling uh, piece for drum set and violin and piano and bass. And I was just always looking for these like unique sort of, um, yeah, and like repertoire. And so I guess I'm, I'm sharing this because I think about my my college and graduate experience because um, I thought I was gonna be in an orchestra when I got to Michigan. Like that seemed like what a violinist would do. Nobody really told me otherwise. So I was on that track for a while. But during Cleveland, uh, when I was at grad school, I realized I had this very specific moment. I was at the Music Academy of the West sitting in orchestra, which we had every single day from like 10 to 12 or whatever it was. So I was a little overloaded by orchestra, but I remember having this moment of, I don't actually think I want to be an orchestra musician. (laughs) And so it was this clarity I had about what I didn't want because I think to me, I really wanted to be involved in something where I had a lot more artistic control and input and the prospect of being in a section was, you know, wouldn't really do that. 
Um, so I got that clarity halfway through grad school, but then it was like, well, then what do I want to do? You know, I know what I don't want. Great. That's half the battle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but you know, after grad school, I ended up moving to New York city and essentially joining Sybarite five, um, who, uh, was very, was very entrepreneurial. And I met them at Aspen in the summer festival before a couple years before I graduated and also played a lot of different genres. And so like, as I look back on all those years of my life, all of my exploration of other genres, learning how to improvise, all these things really have really made me who I am as a musician today and informed, you know, how I became involved in my quintet. And in New York, I did a lot of, I played a lot of electric violin. I, um, cause I was, I could improvise and I could play like with bands and in a whole, there was a whole world. Um, and so I think my versatility has really been, um, sort of a defining characteristic of who I am as a musician. Um, so I think that answers your question. I don't know. I, did I go on a tangent? I'm not sure. Oh, no. Tangents are great. We welcome <laughs> tangents here because it just provides so much more information about you. And I think you brought up the, a great point about even though you were in a, a limiting sort of environment in the sense that like a small conservatory really only has certain focuses, like or yeah. folk eye. I don't know what what's a plural for focus. I have no idea. I, I know, but that is a anyway. <laughs> does not matter. <laughs> I teach band. Anyway. <laughs> um, so even though it, you know, it is limiting in that you provided yourself the ability to explore different genres and that ended up informing what you wanted to do. And I think that's so important to consider when we we talk about these issues of equity and things like that, because I've talked to quite a few string players on the show, and a lot of them feel an immense amount of pressure to pursue just classical music or to pursue an orchestra career and not explore things beyond that lens. And so I think you brought up a very good point of trying to figure out what your path is in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm, I totally agree. And, you know, I think about, you know, as a coach, I actually, I work with musicians on this a lot. Like this topic is so near and dear to my heart because you're right. I, and I, I think as a musician, I had this sort of sixth sense to really explore and I had the courage to do so in kind of a brave way. And I recognize that not all musicians may have that sort of, um, whatever it was, whatever you call it, you know, I don't really know where it came from, but I was sort of pretty persistent in being like, well, where can I find this? You know, let me go to the university across the street. Like I did have some sort of, uh, I don't know what you call it, but, um, but I think about how music schools or the, the music training, traditional classical training, um, and you know, this conversation around what you said, like what we should do. And, um, you know, of course I think our mentors can be very well-intentioned, but I feel like there's not enough focus on really letting people explore and sort of even just having that conversation at an earlier time. Um, you know, here's what you could do, right? And mm-hmm. this idea of, oh, you, well, you should just, you should be an orchestra because that's what makes sense, or you should do this. Um, I think just having conversations, because especially now, and probably more so than when I was in school, um, the, the careers of classical musicians are so much more diverse than than they were. And what is possible and how you can make a living is like, I mean, I really feel like the possibilities are so endless. And there's, you know, I, I fully stand for pursuing the things that inspire you, even if they're not conventional or traditional and finding a way to make it work. And sometimes that's where the most amazing magic happens. Um, and, and, 
we can hear other people's input, whether they're well-intentioned or whether they're just whatever, whatever it is. Um, and how can we be trained in a way where we can take that input and sort of use it how we want, you know, like lessen the pressure of, well, I should be doing this because this is success. You know, if I don't do this, then I'm not successful. And, you know, cause I think as a coach, I mean, I've worked with a lot of musicians who have gone down a path that wasn't aligned and then they find themselves in a place of sort of leading a career that should be happy or they should be happy because they should be successful. There's a misalignment. Um, so what conversations can we be having maybe in school or, or just in general, I guess, in the music world to just discuss this and, and like broaden awareness around really listening to your own intuition, your own gut, what inspires you? And that may not be the same as your colleague or the person in your studio or whatever. And that we can, as artists, like that's part of the magic is that we all have certain things that really inspire us and we can bring things different to the uh, different things to the table. And yeah, so yeah, I love, I mean, I love this conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's so true. And we, we talk about this a lot too, about there's a lot of like elitism within music schools and what major you're in and what you're pursuing. And it seems like people that are at the top are the people that are going for that orchestral position. And then everybody else falls underneath. Like you're like less than right. And I think that's part of it is that there's this immense amount of pressure to pursue what is seen as like your instrument's career in this like little box. And the people that go outside of that are considered, you know, less than in a way, you know, the people that are the elites are the, like the top 2% that get that orchestral job or whatever. And I think that part of these conversations need to be around the idea that you can go do whatever the heck you want to do. And it does not matter what other people think. Right. And we need to promote students exploring their own careers and their own creativity and what actually drives them, what they're passionate about, no matter what it is, you know? Yes, I absolutely agree. I think that, yeah. And just having conversations around the reality of feeling the judgment from others or the comparison or whatever it is. I mean, those, those are real thoughts that's going to happen, but how can we, like you said, have conversations around this and, and make it okay to really truly pursue what you want and support them too. And I think, you know, I mean, if we look at like why, why the music world is this way, I mean, I don't have all the answers, but I think in some sense, you know, there have been shifts in the last I don't know, 10, 20 years. And um, so I think it's, it's, it's a combination because, and, and then actually also it depends on your goals because if you want to be in an orchestra, that's what you want to do. I mean, that is great. You know, I have, I don't, you know, I always tell people just because orchestra didn't align for me, right? And it didn't fit with what I wanted. I think that's, that doesn't mean that someone else actually isn't really passionate about that. Yeah. Um, and I think, but the other conversation, you know, when you think about quote, stable job, right? People go, well, orchestra is a stable job. I need this because it has benefits and all this and that. I think also educating people, well, do you want to take a job just for the stability of it, but also just can you build a stable career without an orchestra or an institution? And the answer is absolutely yes. You know, so um, yeah, shedding light on those possibilities as well. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, we're talking about all these ideas and it's kind of making us go towards the trajectory of your professional career. And we're talking about diverse, you know, music 
careers and being able to make money doing all sorts of different things and not necessarily being in that box. So let's talk about some of your projects and what you do professionally. So you mentioned your string quintet. So can you talk a little bit about your quintet? Because you, your last two albums were on the top 10 of the Billboard charts, which I think is awesome. And that's so great. Can you talk a little bit about your quintet, like how you founded it and what sort of professional things do you do with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sybarite 5 um, has been such an incredible part of my career, such an incredible project. Um, yeah, so I'll give you sort of a, a short backstory because I think it's really interesting and really does inform why we do what we do and how we do it today. Um, I think I mentioned, but I'll elaborate. We the, the, the quintet started at the Aspen Music Festival in school. And uh, before it was a professional ensemble, Lewis, the bass player, was a student at Aspen and he wanted to play chamber music. So as a bass player, that's a little challenging. There's not a, you know, a... a a culture of that necessarily um so he had to create a, create it himself and in aspen there's also a lot of busking where students will just put their case out uh, open their case play music hope people throw in you know five tens hundies whatever it is aspen um and so um that's how sybarite started actually that's how like it, before it was professional lewis just got friends together and he said, let's just play music. Like, I want to play chamber music. Let's just do it on the street, open our case, like, see what happens. And so, um, and this was before I met Lewis. And then as the years progressed, he just did this at the festival. And then he actually found a street corner, a very famous street corner in Aspen outside of the Paradise Bakery, where he was able to talk to the businesses on that corner and say, hey, um, would you be interested in some uh, sort of a, an agreement where you pay my ensemble a little bit of money and we can you know attract a crowd that will then help your business and so he actually created sort of a gig um to do free family concerts outside on this this very uh this street corner and and that's actually when i met lewis it was just a gig it was just sort of a fun thing make a little extra money i was a student at aspen um and the repertoire piece was really interesting because as a string quintet, not only, well, there wasn't much repertoire for string quintet, like there's not libraries, like there are for piano trios or string quartets, right? So we had to get really creative with just finding music. It was like, what can you get your hands on? What can we adapt? Like, we just need music. And so at the beginnings, it was sort of sometimes string orchestra arrangements. I mean, we had everything under the sun, you know, from Pachelbel's Canon to Brandenburg to Aladdin and Little Mermaid and like Led Zeppelin. And like, it was just, like, what can you get? You know, it was sort of just a necessity, just anything. Um, and it was very eclectic. And something we realized is when you're performing out on the street, um, it's really easy to see what people like. Because if they like it, they'll stick around. If they don't, they'll walk away, right? <laughs> um, and that's sort of, you can't, like, that's sort of a unique situation in the sense that you can't get that in a concert hall, right? I mean, I suppose someone could get up and leave, but, you know. <laughs> um, but we learned a lot about what audiences really responded to. And when we played Led Zeppelin, we would get the biggest crowd ever. And so it was just really interesting um, to sort of experience this. And so that was sort of the beginning of our eclectic repertoire as it has evolved today. So basically, but that was still a gig. And then when I was in my last year of school at grad, uh, grad school in CIM, Lewis called me and he said, Sarah, I would love to make this a professional ensemble. Do you want to move to New York and help me do it and spend all your time 
uh, working on something that's not going to make you any money. Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> at that point, as I mentioned, you know, I knew I didn't want to do an orchestra a job. So I was like, whoa, I was like, this is interesting. Um, I had met this ensemble, you know, in a summer, uh, the previous summer, and I was like, well, I play all different genres, which is like sort of up my alley with jazz and rock and roll and classical. And I was like, well, I don't know. So I moved to New York essentially to turn this group into a professional ensemble, which is exactly what we did. Um, and so, yeah, the progression of Sybarite, um, at the beginning, I mean, like I said, like we weren't, <laughs> we weren't really making any money. It was very new uh, as far as, you know, with the lens of let's make this professional because previously it had just been a fun gig that didn't, you know, necessarily have a future in, in that way. Um, so uh, yeah, we produced a lot of our own shows. Um, that's a really, it was a great way for us to just, first of all, have shows and then also learn a lot of the back end of how you do that. Um, but just to have things on the calendar, we said, well, if no one's hiring us, we'll just make it happen. So we did a lot of that. And then um, in 2011, we uh, won the Concert Artist Guild competition. And that was really a big turning point for us where we got a Carnegie Hall debut. We uh, really, we got management as a part of the prize. And that's when we really started touring a whole lot. Um, and now we've played in 44 states and uh before covid we used to tour about 30 to 40 percent of the year um and so uh you know i think another piece i will share about sybarite which i really love i mentioned the eclectic repertoire but i think there's actually more to our sort of uniqueness um one of our missions is to change the perceptions of chamber music and we do that with repertoire nothing we play is really over seven minutes um, very eclectic, a lot of different styles. We do a ton of commissioning, so we work with a lot of composers. But also how we present concerts is unique. Um, we don't have a program. We announce everything from stage, so everybody in the ensemble will speak at least once or twice throughout the evening, so you get to know the players a little bit. And um, also how we dress. Um, we sort of decided back, this was, I don't remember what year it was exactly, but um, we're structured a little bit more like a, a band with our repertoire and we decided that, you know, with the whole vibe we were going for, it didn't, it didn't really make sense for us to show up on stage with like wearing, you know, ball gowns and black suits or whatever it was that was more traditional. So our, our, our dress, uh, we dress differently. Um, you know, it's refined, but it's a little more casual and we feel that it, it sort of breaks down that barrier, um, between the audience and the performer. And, uh, yeah, so that's. Yeah, and feel free to ask me anything in between or anything you missed that you want me to elaborate on. But yeah, that's sort of the story of Sybarite. That's awesome. I think you covered like everything. That was so great. And I love how innovative you're being with your concerts and everything, because I think that that's going to reach so many more people and, and make it more personable and more enjoyable for people to be at those concerts as well, especially since classical music, I feel like is moving in that direction as people are trying to be more innovative, trying to be more creative, how they present music like that. Um, and really try to expand their audiences. I think that's awesome. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I totally agree. And I think it, it, you just reminded me of um, something that happened like back when we were doing this, it was relatively like newer, right? Like pre, mm -hmm. like before 2011, I, I think of 2011 is such a benchmark for us. But before <laughs> that, it was like, you know, people like dressing more casually or not having a program. You know, it was a little, we got a lot of, we did get a lot of pushback for that actually um, when we had, management and when people were hiring us for concerts and I'll never forget our Carnegie Hall debut and this conversation that we had in our ensemble um 
Like, it was like the conversation went something like, are we really going to wear jeans on stage at Carnegie Hall? You know? And it was like, are we going to do that? Like, is that okay? Like, can we do it? You know? Like, that a sin. <laughs> I know. Like, ah, like, it, but we did it. And, but it was just funny to think about that. But, but those were the conversations we were having, you know? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So nuts that, that things like that just play into everything that we do so much. So, you know, you, you're playing this quintet, but you also, you, you talked about your success coach job and, and part of your career as well. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, some of the work that you do as a success coach, as a professional in that sort of realm of things? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as a success coach for musicians, I work with clients one-on-one. -on -one. I also lead online group programs and um, it's just work I absolutely love. And it comes from a different, a few different, there's a couple different reasons I have do this work now. Um, I think, you know, my career, I mean, I could have never predicted the path of my career, um, but I've, I'm very entrepreneurial and I've created a lot of things and um, turned a lot of ideas into reality and, uh, you know, done a lot of things differently and gotten out of the box and really um, learned so much with that when it comes to concert production, marketing and branding, um, how, like, how to turn an idea into a reality, like how do you actually do that? Um, so I have a lot of skills with that. and. So a lot of those things were not things I learned in school. Like I kind of learned them like <laughs> in it, you know, um, trying things like trial and error, really living so many of these experiences. And I've found that these skills are, are things that a lot of musicians don't necessarily have. And it can create a big disconnect from being able to connect the dots from where they are now to where they say dream of being in five years or 10 years, you know, like what do you want to create? Um, how much income do you want to make? Like, how do you want to structure this? How can you make this sustainable? How can you make this work? You know, the, all the pieces of, of that puzzle. Um, so that's a big part. But the other piece of why I'm a, a coach is um, about eight years ago, I went through a, a pretty serious injury. I injured both my thumb joints. And uh, throughout that time, this was actually right after Sybarite won Concert Artists Guild um, in 2012. Um, and that, it, that really sort of like shook me. Like it, I mean, it sort of knocked me out of the scene a little bit. I never completely stopped playing Sybarite gigs, but I basically canceled everything else. And it was a really challenging time for me to sort of navigate, especially, um, in this new, we just won the competition. I was in this group. Like I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to let them down. I wanted to just like go with that, you know, like it was so awesome. Uh, so, um, throughout that time, I, when I was injured, I lost a lot of my confidence. I sort of, I sort of felt like I was living a double life because I was supposed to be living the dream of this new ensemble. But as my hands were, you know, everything was feeling different. Like my playing felt different for the first time in like 20 years or whatever. And you're like, whoa, like, ha, like it's terrifying going on stage and trying to execute things at a high level when just things are just not uh, working as you're used to. Um, and so I lost uh, a lot of my, all my confidence as a player and I developed a lot of anxiety and just sort of couldn't see possibility for myself as a professional violinist. I was like, how can I make this work? I mean, I could barely, like I couldn't really use my hands. I could barely like wash dishes or, you know, like use like use the computer or whatever. It was, it was really challenging. Um, wow. And 
what I realized from that, I mean, I'm, I'm past that, but what the, the way I got out of that was, um, there was a physical part of the injury that I needed to address. And I did, and it took me a while to get that figured out, but I did eventually find a really great musician's doctor to put me on the right track. And if, initially I thought, well, um, once I get the physical sorted out, great, I'll just like bounce back to, you know, like playing like normal and feeling great and that's all I need to do. But mm -hmm. that's not what happened at all. And I realized that there was a mental piece of the injury that I needed to address. So I started working with first psychologists, just, just I had just, crazy anxiety. And then I eventually worked with a musician's coach. And um, what that coach did is she essentially changed my life. And really, we did some intense mindset work, really uh, building my confidence back up. I was able to shift my perspective on the injury. I had a lot of resentment around the injury. Like, why did this happen? I was supposed to be at my peak. Like, it was like I was in this really dark place. And I had to get through that and, and reframe that. And uh, also just really building up my my confidence and and so many incredible skills and that work changed my life and what happened was i you know as i was recovering and, and getting better um people would like ask me like sarah what are you doing because i was doing so well like what do you like what did you do like you were injured like how did this you know like you're you're thriving like you're thriving now what happened um so i started sharing the things I'd learned and also because I didn't learn them in school. And I was like, Oh my God, like, why didn't I know this? Like <laughs> no one taught me this, like this stuff is gold. And I mean, it, it affected me not only, um, with coming out of the injury, but just everywhere in my life to become empowered, to, to, you know, build my risk-taking ability to have courage, to make big asks and, and, you know, get out of my comfort zone. I mean, these were things that affected me everywhere. And so I, um, yeah. And so then that's how I started my blog, The Productive Musician, just because I was like, I want to share this. I'm so excited about it. Um, and I kept studying. I kept studying even beyond, you know, working with this coach. I was studying this stuff. I was so fascinated with it. And then, you know, people sort of asked me, like, would you want to, can you help me do this? And I first started working just with musicians who were injured. And now I work with all different sorts of musicians because it, um, uh, so I have a really, I'm sort of a ninja problem solver when it comes to mindset <laughs> and really like figuring out like, what do you need to be empowered to do the things you want to do? And yeah. then I, then I kind of marry that with the business skills that I have in creating a concert series, you know, creating a coaching business, building an ensemble. And I'm able to really kind of be a detective with someone and say, all right, like what's getting in the way or like, what's, what's the missing piece, you know, and we can go in there and I can, um, we can do business skills, we can do mindset skills and really just sort of unlock what is, is holding them back from truly creating what they want. So I don't know if that's the long or the short story, but that's, uh, that's sort of the, how I, I've, um, that's why I'm a coach. And yeah, now with my clients, I mean, it's, it's amazing work. Um, I help musicians create things. I help them just really love what they're doing more. Um, and you know, like let go of the, fear of judgment from others, like ditching perfectionism, um, really just becoming empowered to, to um, be more confident with what you're doing and really be the driver, you know, taking, taking the driver's seat in your career. And then also the business skills, you know, how do you make money? Like, how do you fundraise? How do you do all of the behind the scenes stuff as well in order to really turn these things into a reality? That's awesome. And yeah, it's so, so needed as well. Can you talk a little bit about, your blog, like the content that you post out there. I know you have a social media presence as well. So can you talk a little bit about your blog? Yeah. 
I mean, essentially, as I mentioned, the blog was just a place where I was just sharing things I was excited about. Mm-hmm. And um, now it's just a place where I share, you know, a lot of tools for musicians, because I think um, I've always, you know, yes, I'm a coach and you can hire me to, you know, for my services, but also I really believe in just sharing this information and serving the greater community. Um, so what have I written? I mean, I've written about all sorts of things. <laughs> like, I mean, um from like productivity hacks, like how do we really make sure we're being most efficient with our time and doing uh, the best work? You know, how do we get ourselves in the best headspace to do our best work? Um, how do we work smarter, not necessarily harder, right? Yep. Um, I talk about that a lot. Um, and then uh, I talk about some business skills. You know, it's essentially like if I if I think about it, it's just sort of like a whole collection of things that I didn't learn in music school that I wish I had. Um, so I think that's sort of how I treat that blog. Um, yeah. and it's, it's really fun. Like I just, I love talking about this stuff and I think it's just changed my life when it comes to really creating a sustainable, fulfilling career, um, to have these tools and just to realize the power of them because it is possible. It totally is possible. And I just want to like, I want to just like shake up the music world <laughs> and just, you know, like, like just empower musicians to, to really um, know that they have a choice. You can create your life and career how you want. Um, and that's what I, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's awesome. And you, when you were talking about your success coach career, you did mention um, the concert series that you created called yeah. Beyond the Notes. So can you talk a little bit more in depth of what Beyond the Notes is, kind of how you came up with the idea and how you went on to sort of establish this awesome concert series? Yes, absolutely. Beyond the Notes is my baby. Um, and, and that actually was sort of a result of the work I did with my coach that sort of came out of in the earlier years and me being like, oh, I can do my very own thing, you know, like that I hadn't, I couldn't see possibility for before that, before working with my coach. So that was sort of a result of that. But um, yeah, so the story of Beyond the Notes is, um, so I started it in my hometown of Concord, Massachusetts. And to be honest, it actually started sort of as a an, an experiment and a conversation I had with a violist friend of mine, actually the violist in Sybarite 5. We wanted to play the Martin New Madrigals, which is a really awesome violin viola duo. And we're like, oh my God, this piece, it's so amazing. This was back in 2015, I think. Um, like, we want to play it. Like, oh, like, how can we do this? And I said, well, you know, like, I could probably um, find a space for us to do it in Concord and... We could just put on a concert, sell some tickets. I don't know. Maybe we'd break even. Like, it was just like this conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. And and actually, I, a little more backstory. Like, I had been doing concerts in Concord for quite some time. I would come back from college and do, like, just a recital at my parents' church, like, for free. I wouldn't even make any money. But um, And then I brought Sybarite to Concord, and my best friend and I have a duo. We had done stuff. So I had sort of been playing in Concord just sort of for fun. I mean, I think we got hired a few times for certain things. But it was just something that was fun to do. So I'd actually been building an audience um, without really realizing what I was doing. But people sort of, you know, oh, Sarah's back. Like, what's she doing? You know, oh, I see she's putting a show on. Um, so when I decided, when I had this idea to, to Angela to say, well, you know, I, I think I can probably get an audience. Like, you know, I've been doing things there. Like people sort of know that I play and they're, you know, I've come and, and done stuff. So that's how it started. I found an art gallery that had space for about a hundred people 
crunched some numbers and I said, all right, well, uh, here's the rental fee. Here's our expenses from travel. Uh, we can stay at my parents' house, you know, like, um, and I sort of was like, well, okay, I'd have to sell this many tickets. If not, like, I'll do a few extra wedding gigs. It was like, you know, it was kind of like, sure, like, whatever, let's just do this. And, um, and before that show, I, then I had this other idea and I said, you know, I keep coming back to Concord to, to do shows. And it's just sort of like the Sarah Whitney show. Like, oh, Sarah's doing something. Like, what is it this time? And I said, what if I actually gave this a name and, um, you know, created something from a branding perspective, right? That people could start to get used to seeing as opposed to just Sarah Whitney and friends or whatever. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, well, I can give it a name. And then I said, what if I did something different? You know, I could have fun with this. Um, what can I do that's not just a regular concert? And I had this idea of what if I gave out note cards and to the audience and had them write questions and then we sort of collected them and answered a few live on stage. Like, could that work? Like that might be kind of fun. Like, could I, could I try that? So that's what I did. And I came up with a name um, and I tried it and it was a huge success. Um, I think we sold out like a week before the show. Um, and then I was like, wow, that's cool. Then the next year I brought the cellist from Subaru 5 and I was like, let's try this again. Like, cool, great. And it was also a huge success. Then the next year I moved to a bigger venue because I was selling out um, like <laughs> a week before the shows were starting. And then I got the Performing Arts Center in town and I brought a pianist. And by this time it was like, it wasn't an experiment anymore. It was like a full on thing that everyone was expecting me to do every year. Um, and so, and that's how it started. And it's been a really incredible project to, you know, along with what Sybarite does with sort of breaking down the boundaries between the audience performer Beyond the Notes does that as well, sort of in a bit of a different way, but also it gives uh, the audience a chance to get to know the performers beyond what can be read in a bio. Mm -hmm. And as I've done this many times, what I've learned is people want stories. Like yeah. people are so curious about the things that you can't read in a bio or you wouldn't read in a bio. Um, like, where's your most memorable show? What's the worst concert you've done? You know, or like... <laughs> funny stories I mean it's and so it's so fun to see what people are curious about yeah um and uh yeah and so and then um oh and then I guess I can tell you a little about what I've done since COVID because mm -hmm. changed obviously um and that format no longer worked at like the big concert hall with you know all the interaction all that stuff um I decided that last summer um I wanted to bring music, music to audiences. I was like, I, you know, I can, I can do my own shows. Like I can do this. Like people are so starved for anything. And so I started doing outdoor shows and I called them beyond the notes minis. And the reason I did that is because I was doing it at, actually at my parents' house and they had this space, this covered space that could hold about 10 to 12 people socially distanced. Um, and I was like, well, I, I, I want to, you know, reach more than 10 to 12 people. So how can I do this? Oh, I could do multiple shows. Um, so I did short shows that are about 30 minutes and I did them multiple times throughout the day. And it became so successful that by the end of, I did them all the way through October. Um, I was doing eight shows in a weekend. Um, <laughs> but, um, so I was doing that, but additionally I added some, I didn't do the questions and the interaction that seemed, you know, that wasn't quite, uh, with the COVID things, it was like, let's not, you know, interact. Okay, fine. Um, but what I did do is I decided to highlight the works of black composers and raise money to support social justice. So a, a certain portion of the ticket proceeds 
go to an organization um, that supports social justice and I chose one a different one every series um, that I did so that's sort of where beyond the notes is now I did some virtual shows when it got cold and now I'm gearing up for some more outdoor things and trying to just see what's possible but yeah that's awesome. And what a great concept and a great idea. And I just love how innovative and entrepreneurial you are. You're like, I see a need. I'm just going to make the need or I'm interested in this and I'm just going to make it myself. And I love that. I love that passion. That's awesome. And so I guess my final question for you would be if someone, let's say like a younger version of yourself or someone wants to really get into creating something new, being, being an entrepreneur in music, do you have any advice as to where they should start or any advice that anyone's ever given you that's been really helpful in creating these, these new ideas and, and meeting those needs? Oh my gosh, there's so many things. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll maybe I'll take a couple different like I'll, I'll drop a couple of things. Um, yeah, sure. I think that, well, first of all, you know, when it comes to creating our own things, um, it's really easy to play the comparison game, right? Like we're looking at what everyone else has done, or maybe we're looking at what people have told us we should do. And I always encourage people, you know, we can look at that, but if you can really get real, are you asking yourself, what do I want to do or what should I do? And there's a really big difference with that, right? When we think about what should I do, the word should implies that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, right? And it, yeah. and we, those influences like, well, I should be doing this or this person is doing that, so I should do that or, you know, and and I think that I, it may seem like a really small shift, but it actually, I don't think it is. You know, can we notice how we're approaching things? Are we approaching them from a place of, I should do this or are we approaching them from a place of, I want to do this? And I think, you know, that's sort of obviously like a foundational question when we are thinking about things, but so powerful if we think about creating a career and life on our own terms that we love, that's where it needs to start, right? Um, so I think that um, that is one thing that I wanna share. And then also, um, don't be afraid to ask for help and use your network and your resources. I think that when I think about how I've created the things I've created um, and the support I've gotten from colleagues, from taking people out to coffee, picking their brain, how did you do this? How did you do that? Um, or, you know, I've hired coaches or I've, I've done, you know, various things to just really, uh, you know, really like, <laughs> I said this vision of like spreading out my tentacles. <laughs> like ask people for <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but um, I think that that's powerful. And I think it's so easy to forget about our network. Because as a student, right, you're in school with people that are then going to become your colleagues or anybody you went to a music festival with or anyone that you know or people you've met, maybe people above you or whatever, like using your network, the power in that is, is really amazing um, from a learning perspective, from also from, um, you know, just making connections, collaborations, all that stuff. I think that there's so much power in that and it can be a place we forget to look um, or we're scared to look. And I think I have found such power in using my network and asking for help and resources um, as I can uh, to, you know, so I just, I guess I just, I encourage people to, to not be scared to do that. And I mean, there's, you know, um, different ways to do that. And that's something I work on with my clients a lot, but, but I guess the bigger, the more important point is just how can, like, are you exploring your network? You know, are you asking those questions and looking in every corner? 
um, because there's gold there. There's so much gold there. For sure. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your thoughts um, today with us. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, this was a really fun conversation. So thank you. And I love what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much.